Hi, I'm Terry, Instagram's sassy sober mum. Welcome to my podcast, Sober Stories from Everyday People, bringing you stories from people just like you and I. The aim of this podcast is to share our experiences with drinking and how we got and stayed successfully sober. know that you can now get access to more of my content, education, support and guidance in the new Thrive community platform. Thrive is a place to connect with like-minded individuals who are all on the journey of living alcohol free. You can gain access to materials and a video library of toolkit ideas which will help keep you grounded as well as boost your emotional sobriety. It's a place to celebrate milestones, big or small, and connect with me directly via weekly lives and a weekly Q&A session in Zoom. No matter where you are in your quest to live a happy, free and sober life, there is plenty to gain from Thrive. Membership is just £20 a month and none of the internal tools are gated, so you won't be asked to pay more for courses and tools once you're in there. Please head over to www.sassysobermum.com slash thrive or click the link in my Insta bio. Look forward to seeing you. Hello and welcome to Sober Stories from Everyday People. Today I have Callum who lives in London and he's been sober for four and a half years, which is awesome, Callum. Thank you so much for joining me on this very, very rainy Thursday. <laughs> it's a rainy Thursday, isn't it? Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Um, right, let's just jump into it. Tell us a bit about who you are and um, describe your life with alcohol. Yeah, so uh, my name's Callum. Um, I'm an actor and a writer and a musician. I've kind of always been working various theatres throughout my life, um, um, playing in bands, that kind of rock and roll scene. Uh, I grew up in a family of drinkers. Um, I'm half Irish and half Scottish. So culturally, there was a kind of a, a strong um, culture around drinking. But it wasn't really until I started working in pubs and restaurants that I got a real kind of taste for uh, not just the booze, but the culture of drinking uh, on my own, outside of my own family. Um, and so I was always kind of a, a big, a heavy drinker. I was actually quite a chronic uh, cannabis smoker as well from the ages of 13 to 16. And then I kind of realized that was becoming a bit of a problem uh, and then immediately replaced it with with pints in the pub when I was 16, uh, working in the kitchens, playing open mic nights, um, feeding like a grown up, finding my own kind of tribe. And that was all kind of great and fun. Um, then I went off to drama school and and worked to, uh, as an actor. And then I, I kind of really started to really indulge. I think I was quite known for having quite a high tolerance of booze. Um, and especially in, in the musician world, there is a, a strong culture, whether it's people think rock and roll, but actually classical uh, musicians uh, and really known for this as well of how much can you kind of drink the night before and still still play um, or even if you go into kind of West End uh, musicians pits you know there is a big culture of you know oh if you've got 20 minutes tacit you can nip into the pub uh, and then come back and carry on there is a kind of big tradition um, of that and I became known for someone who yeah was a heavy drinker but could still handle it and still keep my shit together and that was kind of a um, almost a bit of a badge of honour and it became part of my identity really between the ages of kind of 18 and, and 22 I would say um, and I was really lucky I kind of I came out of drama school and I worked almost solidly in rep theatre for about six years um, so I'd be rehearsing one play during the day and performing another play during the evening might be a Shakespeare one week and then the next month I might be doing a pantomime it wouldn't really uh, it, you know it was both both high art and, and uh, popular stuff um, but all the time playing all the instruments in the show as well um, and that's when I noticed that I was starting to use booze not so much as a social or cultural thing I would be going to the pub if people were joining me or not um and uh it was a the only really way I felt that I could come down from the stress of having to 
remember huge amounts of material perform at a high level uh in quite a quite an old-fashioned theater strict environment as well you know if you get your lines wrong or you get a note wrong you you, you get shouted at um and so if I'd had a good day, I kind of ruled myself with a couple of pints in the pub and that became four or five pints in the pub on a Monday. Um, and then I'd go home and have a bottle of wine or two. And then if I'd had a really bad day, well, I would I would make up for it by having, you know, four or five pints in the pub and then a bottle of wine. And that was just my week. Um, and then on a day off, well, that was for socialising and meeting people and going out and, and uh, also finishing work at 10, 30, 11 p.m. at night your evening starts quite late. Um, mm. So if you're going to have a bit of an evening, you're going to find yourself in a pub or a club or somewhere late. Um, and so it became a, a habit really that I, that I couldn't imagine myself not partaking in. Um, mm. It became really solidified in my early twenties that that's what I did. That's who I was. Um, and I got away with it because unlike a lot of um, people I know who uh, have addiction issues and, and, and quite predominantly alcohol issues, I was never really the person who would be found completely legless or uh, blackout drunk. I've only blacked out from alcohol about twice in my life. Um, I've only been visibly in trouble because of alcohol, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four times in, you know, what was about 17 years of heavy, heavy drinking every day. Mm. Um, I was still the one at the end of the night getting other people home, being, you know, relatively organised, being able to handle my drink, right, that tolerance thing. And so I got away with it. I never really had any massive interventions. Friends would come to me and say, hey, Callum, you know, you think you drink too much? And, you know, but, you know, people would say, you're hungover. I'd say, well, I'm always a bit hungover. You know, it was just a gag. It was just a kind of joke. Um and then uh, it really wasn't until, yeah, around 2018 that I got to a point where I wasn't working at the time. Again, being quite lucky, I was in, in quite regular work. And suddenly in my kind of, you know, I was, I was 26, 27, I started to have to do day jobs. And I was working in bars and restaurants, call centers and doing all that actor kind of hustle life. Um, and I realized that I, I was still completely kind of beholden to the booze really it didn't matter whether it was it it clearly wasn't a performance anxiety thing because I wasn't performing at the time it wasn't a stress related thing because you know I was just doing fairly basic jobs to get by it was a complete addiction that I I didn't have any clue how to get out of um and my my mental health really really nosedived as a result of that as well that must have been really really difficult and we'll come on to that in a moment um you said a few things there actually that that really stuck out for me um really really relate to the identity thing the badge of honor um yeah it's crazy how much you get or at least for for me I used to get and sounds like you too but praised for being an absolute record (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah right it's just quite ridiculous really when we look back but it is very prevalent um socially if you are drinking a lot and coping and it sounds like for you as well not having very many obviously dark consequences that must have been really really difficult but it also must have really fur like deepened your addiction in some ways because you and I differ in that I um did get legless and I did fall over and I did bump my head or cut my hand um or so you know very occasionally might wake up with, with with some sort of bloody bruise or something like that I did black out a lot um, and I did wake up in the morning and not know how I'd got home a lot. And so I had those very, very big reminders of my drinking throughout, let's just say, two decades or so. Um, but I remember I, I always kind of, you know, every now and then you'd meet people in your circle um, and there would always be that one very heavy drinker that just always managed to just drink, drink, drink and just stand upright and never get to that point and like like you just said might even be the one to help everyone else get home 
Um, so that person probably goes under the radar quite a lot for a very, very long time. Is that how it was for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I almost remember getting frustrated with the fact that I wasn't uh, enough of a mess in the eyes mm-hmm. of society to be able to ask for help because surely I should just be able to, you know, I'm, uh, there's always someone worse off than you. Right. Yeah. And, and I actually had friends of mine, you know, um, in the industry and, and also from childhood, from my pub days in my, my hometown uh, in the countryside who, who would crash out or, or, you know, some, some of them went to rehab. Um, one of them nearly lost their life. And my response was always, Oh, thank God I'm not as bad as them. You know, thank God I'm not as bad as which is which is horrendous to admit now but if I'm being really honest that was yeah. my mentality was oh I don't have to stop drinking because I, I thought I was bad but I'm not that bad yeah. and it, it's the way and, and some people talk about their addiction almost like a like a person like personifying it um and I think definitely this is one aspect of how addiction will find a way of convincing you that you still need it you know yeah, the alcohol will find a way of going you need this you deserve this yes um this is part of who you are and and that was one example of of oh you can carry on you can carry on yeah. even, even though deep down I knew it was you know slowly eroding quite a lot of my life and certainly my my mental health yeah and I think that's the thing isn't it about the brain you know we condition ourselves over time to use alcohol for all these different situations so we form this habit and then you know our brain at the end of the day it is designed to seek out pleasure and avoid pain so you can totally understand why alcohol becomes the top of the list for our brain our brain wants the alcohol like it doesn't it doesn't care about all your side effects it just wants its quick it's quick high. I always call it my 15 out of 10 high, you know, because it's yeah. so big and it's it's obviously it's so artificial, but it's so big. It's very difficult to replicate that spike in dopamine. Um, and that's because yeah. it's a drug, right? That's because it's a drug. So that's part, you know, at the end of the day, your, your brain will fool you into doing everything it can to keep you picking up that drink Um and it will even release a tiny little bit of dopamine to remind you that you love your drink and that you need to have mm-hmm. a drink. When you think about drinking, oh, I don't want to drink at six o'clock tonight. It will just go, here's a little bit of dopamine just to remind you how nice that feels. Don't be silly. Go and get that bottle of wine. So, you know, you're really working. And that's where the denial comes, right? It's just that it's it's very Unless you know what's going on and until you build some awareness and tools around that process, it's very hard to be. And it's very easy and comfortable to remain in denial, isn't it? Um, So so easy, yeah. It was interesting there what you said as well. Um, I definitely, like you, um, I definitely was kind of waiting for a sign to stop drinking and I think that a lot of people do that too. And I think some people are fortunate in that they get that sign. Maybe that sign is rock bottom. Maybe that sign is more subtle. Um, and it just, you know, means that, you know, for me, for example, I just woke up and I just had a really, really strong, overwhelming feeling that I had to stop drinking sort of thing um and you know and I and I was like I acted on that but leading up to that point I had definitely looked for signs like tell me you know googling have I got a problem managing to sort of talk myself out of that no I'm not as bad as that I'm not as bad as that person just like you with your friends um I remember going to Thailand as well on on a on a kind of health uh retreat um, when I was a single parent, I, I, I went over the Christmas New Year period because my children were at their dad's and I just I wanted to treat myself and to sort of um, just do something different. I was still drinking at the time and I asked for some blood tests and I, and I paid for some blood tests, actually. The things that you can do in Thailand, you know, so I paid, I paid for these kind of proper doctor blood tests out there. 
and I and, and I deep down I was searching for some kind of indicator in my blood that was telling me that I needed to stop drinking. And they came back and they said they're absolutely perfect. And I think I was kind of half happy, but I was half disappointed. I wanted it to be worse. I needed yeah. a reason to stop drinking. Now, interestingly, in hindsight, um, they did say that I had elevated levels of cortisol in my blood. And I now know that that's a stress hormone. And I now know that that's very heavily linked with heavy drinking, but I just didn't, didn't have that information back then. So actually, if I was kind of a little bit more educated, I would be able to say, ah, there we go. There's the sign you need. But um, yeah, anyway, I digress. But it's a really good point. Like in (laughs) terms of, in terms of how we don't have, you know, I know this was in in Thailand, but it's very, very true in the UK as well. There isn't a hugely holistic approach to, to medicine in terms of mental and physical health. And although mental health is a useful term, actually just health, right? It involves both. We are so connected, our brains and our bodies and our hormones and, and our, you know, everything that is, you know, chemically released into our brain is so linked. And mm. and that was a struggle for me, actually, um, when we, you know, I might, I'll talk about this a bit when we talk about sobriety, realising that I had to be in touch with my body was a really hard thing for me to do because I realised that my mental health was entirely linked to my physical health. And I think if doctors kind of were encouraged to look more holistically like that, we might yeah. catch some of these things a little bit earlier on, the people who are struggling, like like yourself in that instance. Yeah. Why do you, why do you have higher rates of cortisol? Yes. What are your habits like? Yes. You know, that would have been a conversation that might have maybe helped. I, I completely agree. And actually, uh, this really speaks to me at the moment because I don't know um, if you have heard of uh, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Okay. Um, I th- yeah. Actually, I think I, I think I might have done. Actually, yeah. He's got. I think he's got a book out, but he's got a fantastic podcast. Um, oh, wow. And and actually, I, I don't want to say the wrong names. Oh no, I switched my phone off. Um, so um, I think it's sort of like live well or uh, anyway. If you were to search Rangan Chatterjee, basically he's a doctor, and his podcast is all about that disconnect between. Um, health, lifestyle, mindsets, and physical body. Um, And that actually, that we need to bring all of those things together and be more holistic in our approach in treating patients. And that it it shouldn't be, I've got a backache, okay, go to a back specialist, let's just focus on that one area, your back, or let's just have some pills to help fix your back. And then you get something else, okay, let's go over here and see what that heart physician thing. And then basically you have several physicians looking at several different parts of your body. Um, and yet there's no mm-hmm. conversation about what stress do you have in your life? What, what what talk to me about how things are going or you know or, or maybe yeah. even trauma from childhood and, and dr gabor mate he um often says that in the seven years that it takes for you to qualify as a doctor there is almost zero time dedicated to the whole world of trauma and all of that and, and that you cannot you cannot disconnect those things that trauma can create um illness in our bodies and he also does really good interviews about um, things like confidence and I've just listened to one about cold water therapy and now I'm having these cold showers (laughs) but you know there's a lot of there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff on his podcast I thoroughly recommend it um Um, oh I found that it's a happy mind happy life um that's why I've heard of uh, Dr. Rangan Chattery yeah so yes yeah yeah there on his website too yeah yeah oh thank you for that um so let's uh, let's go back now to the period where you decided to stop. Just just talk to me a little bit about that and how you got to that. You know, what did that day look like when you woke up and said, that's it? Um, yeah, I always feel um, uh, kind of split about this. So when uh, the, 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 how I got sober is interesting, it was an interesting day. Um, so it was about Easter time. Um, I, I, I developed this kind of, um, what felt like a kind of spring summer cold. Um, and like a lot of alcoholics, I very rarely got ill. This is quite a common one for regular, uh, drinkers, not so much binge drinkers, but regular everyday drinkers. 
um, I kind of never really got a cold or a flu. And I I really struggled. I just couldn't shift it. And I remember going, uh, I, I was working in a cafe um, and I'd, I'd gone to the pub afterwards um, to have my, you know, usual four or five pints of cider uh, before going home and having a bottle of wine. That was my, you know, Monday. Um, and I, I just couldn't finish my pint of cider. Um, I just couldn't get through. I didn't feel well enough. And I thought, right, okay, this is a sign. I'm obviously unwell. I obviously need to, my body's saying, you know, don't, don't have a drink. This is good. You know, great. I'll have a couple of days off. Um, and I went home and I didn't drink. And I, the next day, uh, I tried the same thing. And I, I think I maybe had a half or something like that. And I, but I couldn't finish it. And I was like, definitely right. That's it. I'm not going to have my, my beer. Um, and so I'd gone in my head, I, I kept saying I hadn't really drunk for two days. I think it was about 36 hours without alcohol, but that's the longest I'd not had a drink for again, a, about 17 years. Wow. Um, and I woke up uh, the next day and I didn't have work. Um, I, had, um, I had a meeting with my sister. My sister was coming over from North London to meet me in South London because it's my mum's 70th birthday. Um, and as I kind of said, I come from a, a, a musical family as well. And so I was asked to write a song, which is something I kind of do for work anyway. I write songs for other people. Write a song for my mum's 70th birthday that my sister and I were going to perform it and that was the brief and so we both kind of reluctantly went oh this is embarrassing but okay yeah, we'll do it so my sister was coming around on a weekday and she'd got a day off work and she'd had a babysitter for her kid Finn my nephew uh, and we met I think she came over about midday um, and she said god you look like shit <laughs> and I said uh, oh yeah yeah fine she went are you hung over I said no normally I would be um, but actually today I'm not I've you know I'm on my second day of not drinking. Oh, wow. Well done. Yeah, yeah. I think I just need to have a break. I'm not feeling well. I've had this cold. So we sit down and we start writing. I get the guitar out and strumming through chords. And my sister's a really nice poet. So she'd written some lovely lyrics. And I was kind of, you know, working that into a song to the notebook. But throughout the kind of uh, the first hour or so, she kept saying to me, Come, you all right? Are you all right? And I just said, yeah, I've just a bit kind of got a bit of a fuzzy head. I'm just not feeling great. I've got this cold. And she said, yeah, yeah, all right. And then I started to kind of itch quite uncontrollably um, from my kind of toes to my ankles, up to my knees, <clears throat> all the way through my legs, my arms, my face. It felt like a kind of army of ants all over me. Um, and she said, that's a bit weird. I said, yeah, it's a bit weird. Um and she said, you, you're, you're, not, you're not quite with me here. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And I was writing away and putting work out. But she, she just said, you're not right. And, and she was right because I, I, cognitively I was kind of losing. I felt really, really tired. And I was kind of losing my ability to articulate <clears throat> what, I was, what I was feeling properly. And she said, this isn't, this isn't right. She's got a couple of friends who are doctors. So she texted one of her friends um, ironically called live actually um and uh and said you know my brother's showing some weird symptoms do you know what this is and she said well you know she's a blood specialist and, and deals with kind of tropical medicine and so it wasn't really her area but she said yeah it is really worrying it feels like almost like poison kind of symptoms so this was on the slide so my sister then went right okay you've got to call 111 so so she called 111 and then eventually put the phone over to me and I described some symptoms. And I said that I'd had this kind of flu thing, a bit feverish, you know, I was sweating at this point as well. And uh, they said, yeah, um, with your symptoms at the moment, I think you need to go to A&E. I said, don't be ridiculous. This is something I'm fine. I need to have a lie down or a nap or something. Sure. But I don't need to go to A&E. They said, yeah. So where do you live? And I told them, they said, right you need to go straight to uh, Croydon University Hospital now. Don't wait for an ambulance. Uh, this is urgent. My God. So really embarrassed at this point. I'm like, um, and my sister's like, right, we've got to go. So the guitar gets put away <clears throat> and uh, we get on the train to then get a, a tram or a bus to the hospital. Uh, and I'm on the way and we're kind of laughing and joking and I'm really starting to get kind of sleepy at this point. And I can't remember the way to the hospital. Now I live about 20 minutes away from my hospital. Like it's really easy. Uh, and this is my neck of the woods and I can't explain how to get there. We get to A&E 
I'm looking around the room of really ill people and feeling like a complete imposter at this point, like I'm wasting kind of NHS time. Yeah. Um, and then what feels about half an hour later, but it was a bit longer uh, in retrospect, uh, I get called up, my name gets called and I go to the desk to give my name and I um, can't say my name. I just can't, I can, I can think it, but I can't say the words, my own name. Oh my God. And at that point, everything kind of goes a bit fuzzy. I have a, a memory of being in a wheelchair and then I have a memory of waking up in a in a hospital ward and I'm trying to <laughs> clamber onto this bed and I can't really do it because all my motor functions are, are going um and everyone thinks that I'm drunk <clears throat> luckily my sister's there by just chance of the fact that we were meeting up this day and she says no 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 he hasn't had a drink for two days he, I, I, he's t- he is a drinker but he's not drunk right now and Croydon University Hospital is a teaching hospital. So about 10 student doctors kind of tagging each other in, like kind of wrestlers trying to work out what's wrong with me. And then eventually this older doctor, uh, Irish guy, comes up and he grabs me by the, the face and he says, how much do you normally drink? And I said, uh, rather inappropriately, normally a fuck ton, but nothing for two days. Oh, God. And he went, got it. And he disappeared and the next thing I remember is waking up and I'm having my cannula changed. Um, and yeah, it turns out what, what had happened was that I developed hepatitis of the liver, which is essentially kind of extreme withdrawal. Um, my body, for the first time, hadn't had alcohol for, again, realistically about 30, 36 hours and was shutting down. Mm. Um, it was a 50-50 chance whether I'd come through it. Um, they were pretty confident that if I did survive, that I'd have severe brain damage uh, and that I'd have permanent scarring on my liver, which would obviously hugely damage my chances of having a, a pretty healthy uh, life uh, afterwards. So it was pretty hairy. Um, miraculously, uh, with the help of a lot of vitamins and being flushed through, um, I came out of it 10 days later. Um, and... I yeah, since then I, I had a have had a scan. I've I've managed to get away with no scarring on my liver. I've managed to heal entirely. So there's there's kind of no trace of, of liver damage. Um and according to all the CT scans, I have had no brain damage. Um so I'm incredibly lucky to have got away with it. The reason I tell that story is because a lot of people come up to me and say, Oh, well done. Well done for being sober. How did you do it? And my response is I don't think I would have done had I not been taken to hospital and dried out for 10 days and not everyone gets the chance to do that no and that's quite yeah it's quite strange isn't it because that that was your side wasn't it and my goodness that is a big punch in the face sign and thank goodness you got through that that what a story I mean that makes me kind of shudder a little bit to think that you had no awareness that that was happening or that that was going to happen to you. Um, and, you know, was the cold part of that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it was an interesting thing talking about why that withdrawal happened and what hepatitis of the liver is, because hepatitis sounds dreadful. Right? It's something you'd associate with kind of maybe, you know, a dirty needle or, or mm. um, kind of, you know, VD. But, but essentially my liver despite having this big tolerance that I was known for, right? This kind of, well done, Callum can handle his drink and still get to work on time and still do a good job. I, I, my liver wasn't actually that strong, um, partly because I'd started drinking uh, and, and smoking cannabis way, way younger than I should have done, you know, when mm. I was 13, 14. Yeah. Um, so it didn't have a great chance to develop. And so all the alcohol that should have been processed by my liver my liver couldn't handle it in time because I wasn't giving it a day or two off. Uh, so it was storing it as fat on the outside of your liver, mm. which is kind of very common in alcoholics. But when I'd stopped, the, my liver was going, great, we can now process this backlog. But all that fat, sugar from the alcohol, essentially, had now crystallized, almost like, you know, when you put honey uh, in, a, on, in, in your cupboard for ages and yes. on the top it gets crystallized? yes. That's what had happened to my liver. So now it's processing very, very high alcohol content poison, essentially, trying to flush that through. And my liver is now sending that around my body. And that's why 
everything was starting to shut down, including my brain. It's it's fascinating, actually. Um, But it's also one of those things that you don't think will happen to you, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that you, you do think that you can continue drinking at alarming rates, really, even if you are just binge drinking every week, it's still overloading your system with too much alcohol. Um, and yet expect it to all function well and to be able to do that for 20, 30, 40 odd years. I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite eye opening to hear a story, um, you're a young person and you had this and it's, it's just, it's unexpected, isn't it? And you just don't think it's going to happen to you. And what a wake up call that is <laughs> to have to go through. Um, it was certainly a wake up call, <clears throat> but it was also quite, you know, scary because, um, because then I, you know, I had this, this 10 day period in hospital and then I was kind of released out into the world. And, and my sister, you know, thank god she was there you know she saved my life along with those doctors and i was incredibly lucky but at the same time i suddenly had this feeling of oh shit now i've got to if now i've kind of got to choose to live haven't i like Mm -hmm. and what does that actually look like um and i remember a couple of guys from bromley drug and alcohol service knew where i live popped in and they said you know doctors said you can't drink for six months but you probably you know, if you're in this situation, you've probably got a relationship with alcohol you need to get to grips with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> come and see us. And uh, and so I did, and I engaged in smart recovery, um, twice weekly meetings for two years. And I, um, I, I looked at a bit of AA and I engaged in, uh, you know, 12-step literature and looked at everything, basically. I kind of broad and, and channel and broad for everything until I found tools to put in my toolbox that could help keep me sober. And, and it was in that that I really started to understand uh, why I built this relationship with alcohol. And like you say, you know, as Gabor Mate says, you know, trauma doesn't have to begin with a, with a capital T. No. Actually, the way our, our brains form um, and our relationship to the coping mechanisms we build in our life um, all make sense at some point. Uh, and we hang on to those things, even if they don't make sense for us anymore. We've learned those coping mechanisms. Um, and so having to kind of relearn how to do that was, mm. that was the big challenge for getting, for for staying sober for me. Um, yeah. But it was also incredibly liberating and uh, it taught me how to look after myself for the first time ever in my life. And and so in that sense, I'm hugely grateful for that, for that wake up call. Um, because if I, if, if for some reason my liver had been a liver had been a bit more robust and I'd carried on for another few years, um, without having that crash, I, not only would I, if, if the alcohol hadn't killed me by now, certainly what I was doing with my life in terms of the destruction of, of my mental health and the destruction Mm -hmm. of my financial health and my self-esteem, I definitely, I think I, I, I would have ended up in in serious trouble in other ways. So, yeah, hugely grateful for that. But I always like to reiterate the fact that when people are like, oh, it's amazing, how did you do that? I'm like, well, I I did. I didn't, and I wouldn't have stopped drinking had I not gone into hospital and and, and come, you know, four or five hours away from death, is what they said. So if I'd gone to bed that night, I would be dead. I wouldn't have done it. So for me, when I meet people who, who who have done it themselves, you know, without the help of medical aid, without being strapped to a hospital bed, that blows my mind. I cannot imagine the strength that that requires. Um, uh, so I, I always feel a little bit like a fraud, but, um, you know but what? Now, That's... now I've got some time. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm writing something down in front of me because that really kind of, that, yeah, that jumps out uh, to me. Um, and um, I hope that I don't offend you with this. No. Um, but it's interesting because for some, for, for whatever reason, well, for the reasons that you've explained, but it's almost like you, you, you can't give yourself that credit 
for getting sober. And and actually, what, what you have to remember is that, yeah, you had a jolt from the blue, just like people have rock bottoms or they have mini rock bottoms, whatever it is, you still came out of that situation and got yourself sober. You think about people like George Best. He Did he have like one or two liver transplants or something? And then he still drank and died from his yeah. alcohol addiction. So there's probably a little bit of... Um, I don't know, is that shame driven or just, you know, maybe self-esteem driven or there's something there still that is for sort of whatever reason, not allowing yourself to give yourself that credit. Cause I think what you've done is absolutely amazing and you should stand proud in that. And, and thank God your sister was there. Um, but however we get sober, uh, yeah, don't, don't rob yourself of that credit because everything that's got you to where you are today has come from you completely from you. So, you know, that's, that's a real achievement. Thank you for, for that. And you're, and, and you are right, actually. Yeah. And hearing it back, I'm going, yeah, why is that? That's old <laughs> behavior coming back in. You're right. I, I should totally uh, not be, not be sitting in a place of shame or guilt. And to be honest, if I, if I had, you know, or if that was my kind of daily practice, I wouldn't still be sober. Um, and you're right, actually, you have to kind of go back into a place of, of owning your sobriety and I think that that's actually almost where the real work starts mm. um, it isn't necessarily just getting sober it's the staying sober that takes the yes. work um, yeah and I think you you know you mentioned something that is um I think so easily overlooked and and it's it's something that I'm trying a message that I'm trying to share a lot more on my uh, own personal group that, that I have but also uh, yeah, when Instagram and, and in these podcasts is, is that actually a lot of us grow up for whatever reason, okay, but we grow up and we do not develop coping skills or coping mechanisms. And when you drink alcohol from 13 or 14, you stunt that growth you know you 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 yep. limit your emotional maturity because what you're doing is you're just swapping in the booze to fix the problem and mm-hmm. that's easy and that's quick and that is bloody effective <laughs> and therefore you then you set that habit for the next 10 20 30 years when you stop drinking yeah. when you stop drinking um at what you know at at your age for me it was 30 13, I'm trying to think, was it 39 that I stopped? No, maybe it was 41. Yeah, I'm 45 now. Yeah. <laughs> when I start, I'm just like losing years over here. Uh, when, uh, when when I stopped drinking at 41, I it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't know how to deal with stress and disappointments <laughs> and uh, all of these other types of feelings. I didn't have coping skills. And that is really challenging, isn't it? Yeah, massively. I kind of felt almost embarrassed because you kind of come out as this adult yeah. baby who's who's <laughs> quite vulnerable and quite fragile. And yeah. I'd never thought of myself as someone who suffered with anxiety. I, I knew I was a depressive, but in normally kind of two or three month chunks, I would normally I'd be able to get myself out of depressive periods. Um normally by by distracting myself with with work or something good would happen and that would ride me through for a while but suddenly in sobriety yeah I was feeling all of these things yeah. and realizing that I wasn't as capable or as strong as I I thought I'd kind of been um yeah I almost found that uh kind of privately quite embarrassing I don't know yeah. if that's fair to say but um but yeah you had to deal with with those with those feelings and also I was talking to someone recently and I, I said something a bit controversial uh because I think we were talking about prescription drugs and, and I actually haven't haven't used any or haven't had to yet <clears throat> but I think they can be really helpful especially to recovering alcoholics because I think alcohol is the most effective drug in short-term anxiety release like nothing mm-hmm whether it's sertraline or citalopram or Prozac, nothing really seems to be as immediately effective at relieving your anxiety mm. in the way that alcohol just shuts off that hormone release. Um, of course, you know, those of you who are listening, who kind of, you know, have, have looked into this, there is a debt to be paid. You are yeah, there is, yeah. Those hormones, yeah. that cortisol is still going to be there and you're still yeah. going to have to deal with it, but all in one go, right? And that's yeah, why yeah. you get things like anxiety and um and 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 so it, it's very intense 
But the I think that's where alcohol becomes so dangerous because even though you know that is going to make your anxiety or your stress worse in the long run, uh, not even the long run, tomorrow, right? Mm. Or, or the minute you stop drinking, you're, you're going to have to start processing those those hormones and those chemicals. Um, your brain still wants you to just go for that easy option. Like of you course. Said of course. Yeah. I mean, the brain uh, just wants the quick fix. Yeah. That's what it wants. Um, and that is hard to break, uh, especially as building coping skills doesn't happen within the same five minutes that a glass of wine can impact how yeah. you feel. It, <laughs> yeah. You know, but trying to standing in the moment and thinking, shit, I don't know how to deal with this. I need to learn a new coping strategy. Um, that is obviously always going to be the much harder route. <laughs> it's always yeah. the harder route. In the long run, it is absolutely the best route to take. And uh, we'll we'll come on to all the positives and things in, in a moment. But certainly in that moment, where do you even start? You know, these sorts of things have to be trained it's like training it's it's mm. it's learning or relearning because I, I like that because it's 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 almost like sometimes we say we have to relearn if I'm being totally honest I didn't learn them in the beginning there's nothing to relearn I have to learn from scratch how yeah. to manage my you know frustration or you know why I'm bursting into tears every five minutes because something's not going my way a bit like yeah. A bit like my seven-year-old might do at the moment um, yeah. if she doesn't get something she wants, you know. I'm sort of, I noticed that I was stuck in that emotional zone and that was embarrassing for me um, and it was difficult and I also didn't know where to start. I didn't, how, how do you build coping skills? Like where is the shop that you can go to that you can buy the top six best coping skills? You, it, It's, you know, you have to fumble your way through this stuff. Um, yeah. And a part of that is like you say, you're getting, you're getting on top of the fact that you're realizing that you need all these coping skills. You are then getting your feelings slapping you around the face thick and fast because you're not numbing them out or pushing them down. So it's almost like double whammy. Uh, so this is the, the, this is the sort of, this is the sober stress, this bit, I think yeah. in the earlier days, this is the stuff that, really cements your success if you can get through this and build up this stuff and learn read books listen to podcasts just yeah. expand your mind open your mind be more aware be more aware of what you're saying to yourself just all these little tools like it don't have to be like big things I and mean, just awareness is the biggest tool in the box i think um absolutely but yeah I, I think especially when you talk about like uh on this podcast you talk about the first hundred days yeah like and and also education is life right this is, yes. these are, are things that help but I I love the fact that often often we're kind of geared to having something to show for our work like especially I mean I grew up in a very kind of meritocracy kind of driven uh kind of new labor culture which was which was all kind of sounded great and lovely but also a lot of people you know around you know you know 30 to 40 or or even even plus have have a real link of success to material what have you got to show for it mm. and in your first 100 days of sobriety all that you have to show for it all that you want to aim for is just sobriety that's it mm. um so so i think that's a real like something i'd like to re reiterate is you don't have to be winning at anything other than staying sober and and in the meantime yeah learn as much as you possibly can I love that you kind of give that advice out here just yeah. you don't even have to understand it just read it do something yeah. that yeah. is associated with your sobriety absolutely D daily practice do yeah. something every day things will click things might not click at first things you know but it does it does click things click and when they click it's such a eureka moment you know when little things click into place and you go oh right I get it I need to do this or I need to do that or whatever but you have to be open to trying different things reading different things listening to different things yeah and then and then you're just you're giving yourself access to information that will support you and and will help you um what so talking about that first hundred days then describe what that was like for you um well the the 
there was a lot of fear, <laughs> a lot of fear. Some of that was, uh, you know, like you say, not being used to the general day-to-day stresses of life because I wasn't able to self-medicate and numb myself from that. And some of it was very real because I built my identity, but also my career as a freelance artist performing and 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 writing, whether it music or you know or scripts for for an industry where my identity within that industry was hardcore. So suddenly I, my, the question of my whole identity, not just personally, but professionally, was now going to have to be something new. So I was quite worried, like, would people still hire me? How was I going to get jobs? How was I going to network? Like, everyone was going to assume that I was going to kind of meet them for a beer, and could I do that anymore? And also, I, I've always had, as I say, my, I fell in love with the pub before I fell in love with the booze, right? The culture and the live music and the storytelling and the mixture of 18 and 80-year-olds meeting in a communal area and having conversations they wouldn't normally have. So I was really scared that I was going to lose the thing that I loved most about life, um, mm. going and talking to kind of random people in pubs. And and I, and I so I, I was kind of learning whether whether that was safe for me, whether I could go back into a pub or an alcohol setting, um, and also whether people would still like me, you know, without a drink. And I know that sounds kind of maybe silly, but I, I bet there are lots of people. Oh, it's very common. Know, who resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah, that is so common. We we worry, and as drinkers, I think we worry the most, or at least a huge amount, about what people think. Yeah. I, I really, yeah. So that's a, that's a big one. Um, and then the other thing was... Um, yeah, so professionally uh, and and in terms of social life, that was a worry. But also just worrying about knowing how bad my mental health was. I mean, I I, I was really at a kind of emotional rock bottom about, I would say, two months maybe before I was hospitalised. Mm, that's um, interesting. And and I I I was really struggling. I'd stopped writing altogether. I'd kind of stopped even going to auditions. I'd become really disillusioned and quite bitter with the whole thing. Um, and so I I was really yeah at a loss of what to do. Um, but I kept going to smart recovery meetings and I kept engaging in uh, in literature and listening to podcasts and. I don't know, I can't tell you whether there was a specific Eureka moment, but I remember my my partner at the time, um, uh, who I, I met about six months into recovery, um, you know, she said to me once, should I be been to a meeting this week? I said, no, I haven't, I haven't had time. She was like, mm, have you got time on Tuesday? Go to the Tuesday one. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. And I realised that I couldn't tell you or anyone else whether it was a good meeting, whether it was productive, whether it did anything for me, but everyone would know if I hadn't gone. They would, my my peers, the people who knew me best, would just know because they'd see a difference in me in terms of stress. And that's when I realised that actually when you go to a meeting, you're not going to um, have a breakthrough moment. You're not going to specifically learn anything. You're going there to practice the art of vocalizing your addiction and vocalizing mm. uh, the stresses of life with other people who mm. just get it. It's connection as a, well, that isn't it? It's connection. I, I love that. I, I mean, uh, yeah, there is, uh, you know, the adage that the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah, and and that and connecting with people from so many different walks of life yeah. and no one is judgmental. No one gives a shit what your background is, what your accent is, what yeah. you're, you know, it, everyone is bound and leveled by the same thing. And that is an incredible thing to be a part of. Um, Lovely. Yeah. And, and that's when I kind of also realized that the, that that's why I like the pub in the first place. Right. Mm, um, yes. As long as you're, you know, spending time with people who are good people you can go back into that community. And so I realized that actually I was someone you could go back into a pub and, and order a soft drink and a sober and li- soda and lime. I always made sure I had an exit plan. I always made sure I went with, you know, people who knew that I was sober. I didn't give myself opportunities to kind of slip under the radar or, you know, um, in case I, I might relapse. But, um, but that's when I realized that actually community was still something that was good and that fueled me. And it wasn't just, uh, wrapped up in the alcoholism and that was that was hugely liberating for me oh. um, 
but also I got into the, all the weird things that I never tried. I did yoga for 20 <laughs> minutes a day, three times a week. I'd go full walks. I'd listen to music. I'd read fiction books that weren't to do with work or were, wouldn't be productive. They'd just be for me. Oh. And and I got into this practice of doing things that I liked. I started mm. eating healthily because I suddenly recognized the change in my body. Yeah. When you're drinking it's or, or, or using it's very difficult to notice the difference between having a salad and having a pizza, right? Because it, all of it is just, your body hasn't got time to even take the nutrients from good stuff you're putting into your body. So why would you care about that kind of thing? Mm. But oh my goodness, I felt the difference when I bothered to make porridge in the morning instead of just like having, I don't know, not having breakfast at all or like having a biscuit, you know, the mm. difference in having good stuff in my body so I became quite healthy and then I started going into exercise a bit more and I realized that I really liked the endorphins of exercise and I liked the fact that I even though I hated the half an hour that I was at the gym it gave me a really enormous sense of well-being afterwards and I felt kind of proud of myself and that in turn helped my self-esteem and I kind of I really reluctantly was like oh <laughs> it's, all working. it's all working all the cliches are working I was really annoyed at that you know uh, um, but really that was, it was also really good and, yeah. and I'm still not you know I haven't been to the gym for, for quite a while because it's wintry and I'm still lazy and I'm still a human being that I was before yes. but I know that it's there um, as yeah. an option for me and I know yes. that it's some and so it goes in my toolbox of things that I can mm-hmm. do right now it's yeah a rainy miserable Thursday yeah. but I know that I can do something later for my recovery, which is read a book for fun for me. It doesn't even have to be recovery related. Mm. Don't even have to think about addiction if I don't want to. But doing something that is going to give me pleasure that is not harmful is an act of recovery. That is an act of self-love. Um, oh, I love that. You know, journaling. You don't have to be writing about your alcohol addiction. You don't have to be writing about sobriety. You don't have to be writing about anything. You can just sit down and indulge in journaling something, knowing that you're never going to read it back and no one else is good. You can throw it in the bin afterwards. Just the act of doing something for mm. yourself that is not harmful is in turn an act of, of, of care. And, and, and that for me, having you know, a range of things in my toolbox is incredibly useful. And looking out for new ones as well, because you know, they might be work for you for a while, like any coping mechanism. But you might want to diversify and go for something else for a while, and that's okay. Absolutely, I, I, I think that's that's the beauty of life. You can try new things, you can do different things, you can like those things, you can not like those things. You have the power yeah. of choice, and and that's and that's also something that sobriety gives you. It gives you time, and it gives you focus. And it gives you that realization that you can, you have the power, you can choose, you can choose what to do with your time. You don't have to be bound by this alcohol clock cycle of like, when am I drinking? When am I drinking? What am I drinking? Uh, I shouldn't drink then. I I should drink, you know, and all that. It's, it's it's such a cliche, right? But well, within the sober community, but my goodness, I had no idea how much time there was in the day. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> and I'm, t- you know, I'm talking about someone who held down, you know, lots of different jobs. I had a, you know, pretty varied skill set. You know, I, 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 I was, I was paying rent in London. Anyone who's doing that knows how to hustle and work hard. But the fact that I was doing that on top of having to look after this addiction, mm. the time and the money and the effort my goodness, when I, when I realized in those kind of first hundred days, as you say, one of the things I learned was that I could do loads with that energy. Um, addicts are very resourceful people. Um, you know, a friend of mine says if, if he'd put as much effort into being an entrepreneur as he had his addiction, he'd be a billionaire by now. <laughs> like it's incredible and, and really, and c- kind of really cool to realize how much time there is, um, and how much choice we have. And again, someone who's never had a problem with addiction or alcoholism might might go, well, of course, that's what life is. But actually, for a lot of us in recovery for the first time in our lives, you know, find that incredibly new. The fact that we've got time and energy and resources to be able yeah. to enjoy life. And if you're, you know, anyone listening who, who might think that they've got a bit of a problem with alcohol, but they're not an alcoholic or anything like that. Like, if you're the type of person even if it's not an addiction, it could be something else. Like eating disorders, people with eating disorders come to me all the time and say the way you talk about recovery is exactly like my ED. Mm. Or 
you know, anything that is, and, and you know, Gabor uh, Mata would say, this, you know, similar things. If you're someone who feels like you are um, chained to life, that you are, that you have no time, that you have no freedom, that you have no choice, and you're not doing the things you want to do, and you're constantly on this treadmill, a lot of that is is formed by habits that are coping mechanisms. And if you can break those habits and reaffirm who you are and build and learn new habits, then you will find a huge sense of liberation and there's huge creativity um, in, in how you can make your life and be in charge of it and have that choice. Um, I promise that's there. I completely agree. Have you read Atomic Habits by James Clear? No, I'm writing it down on my little Oh, you need note. to get this book. He, um, he's just, this, this book is, is, I found it quite transformational, actually. I'm two thirds of the way in and he has the most practical tips about building new habits and breaking old habits. Um, but everybody seems to be talking about it right now. So oh, there is an cool. atomic habit wave going on at the moment so uh get on it <laughs> it's my we'll advice um oh so oh it's been such an amazing chat i and yeah there's so much wisdom in this one hour that we've had together it's it's going to be super helpful for people um can i please ask what your top three tips would be and um, getting or staying sober my top three t- i mean you've got to rein me in here because they're they're just the, there are millions and, and as we say they can be useful to you at certain points and uh and, and less useful to to you at other points but i think i want to reiterate this point of of you know especially if you're early on um in your recovery do at least one thing a day for your sobriety yeah um, love that and and even and if you can't do that do one thing a week but it uh, do whenever you can do do one thing, um, ideally one thing a day, and it could be something really small. Like it, it could be, you know, if your thing is meditation, if your thing is, is listening to a podcast, if your thing is reading literature or chilling out or journaling, no matter what it is, and even if it's just 10 minutes or going for a walk, think of that as a, as a, as a thing that you're doing for your recovery and to yourself. And I think getting into that habit is not only a good habit to form, but also your body will love that. Your brain will love that. And, everything else in your day or your week will be better as a result of that. So it's a, it could be anything, but do one thing that you think is good for your sobriety. Um, the other thing was is, is kind of maybe semi-obvious, but don't be afraid to voice your struggles. I don't think this has to be dramatic. Um, a lot of people don't want to go in and talk about your, you know, talk about your addiction. And, and I think, um, you know, certainly when you stop drinking, people ask you, oh, why are you not drinking? You have to kind of trot out a, a <laughs> sentence or two that you've kind of pre-prepared by now and you just, you know, to move on. I don't necessarily mean that. I mean, when, you know, my flatmate or my family go, how are you? And I go, yeah, great. I'm good. I'm fine. And I go through all the things that I'm, you know, doing and whatever. If I am having a bit of a stressful week or I have thought about drinking, I might just slip that in. It's like, oh yeah, a couple of interesting things with the you know, with my addiction or with my recovery came up, but yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine with them. And I'll just normalize mentioning that occasionally. Yeah. With people, obviously with people that I trust and people who know my story and my, my history and I feel Mm -hmm. safe with, but the relief of being able to voice it in a very normal way, in the same way that someone might go, Oh, I've had a really stressful week at work. I might go, yeah, I've had a really stressful week at work and, I really could have done with the drink on Wednesday. Obviously I didn't, but you know, Mm. just saying it out loud for me is a really personal uh, thing that helps. I don't do it very often, but when I, when I do struggle or I'm having cravings, again, they're quite rare these days, but Mm. just saying it and normalizing it really helped because it, it it stopped it being a dark secret in my brain. Um, That's that vulnerability piece as well, isn't it? That, you know, being vulnerable and sharing that that actually can reap so many rewards as well like you say if you choose the right audience so people that you trust and that you love quite often when we share vulnerability we we gain some understanding and you know and acceptance and that can be really healing as well 
So that that is a really, really, really good bit of advice. And oh, my last one was a toss up between two. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's about actual cravings. I'm someone who um, uh, realised in sobriety that I didn't miss alcohol. The only time I ever really get cravings, uh, certainly in the early days and, and even now, is when I'm super stressed. <laughs> if I'm really, really tired and stressed, that's when I think about booze. Mm. And I was someone who could talk quite well about wine. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I had opinions on alcohol. I wasn't, you know, someone who'd just be like drinking straight vodka. Of course, I would if, I, if that's all that was available. But, you know, uh, I, I didn't, I thought of myself as someone who would miss a really nice glass of wine with a steak or something. I didn't. The only thing at the time I thought about it was stressful, um, stressful situations. So, uh, uh, again, someone in a recovery group said this to me, whenever they feel they have a craving, they say the word halt to mm. themselves. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Normally, not always, but 90% of the time, if you are having a moment of anxiety uh, and if you're an addict and that comes in the form of a craving, you're normally one of those things. Uh, we are less complicated creatures than we like to think. Yeah. Um, if you're hungry, eat something. If you're angry, maybe sit in that anger or express it. Uh, if you're lonely, reach out to someone. If you're tired, rest. Um, yeah. More often than not, those things will get you through a craving. Um, uh, so, so those are... You know, that, that that's kind of one of my craving craving advices uh, the other other craving advice would be play the tape forward which is a, a common phrase that a lot of yeah. aa um guys use and um yeah what happens for you if you actually drink <laughs> is a that's just just technique. fast forward that tape yes no that's a really good technique um they are brilliant yeah really love those um one more quick question what mm-hmm. would you say to yourself if you could go back to day one of your sobriety now, what would you say knowing what you know now? Uh, your problems are going to be the same in your life, uh, broadly speaking. You know, it's not a cure-all. That bad things are still going to happen. There are going to be ups and downs. But instead of having an existential crisis about it for three days and going on a bender, you can just have some toast. And that, that. that is like worth everything to me i love that i love that so much you just have some toast fixes a lot right toast yeah. toast is great yeah like yeah. It, it really could be something as simple as that yeah. um yeah your life's not gonna be gonna be magically perfect but my goodness when you start when you when you start and obviously it's on day one of sobriety i had no idea what i was in for but I I also didn't know how quickly and how how easily you can build these coping mechanisms, like you say. Um, we are amazing in that sense. Our brains are incredible, even if you haven't engaged in a in a decent coping mechanism for forty years of your life. <laughs> you'll be amazed at how quickly you can learn how to self regulate. Um, yeah. Just like a baby, you know. I mean, I'm not a parent, but you know, I'm, I'm I'm an uncle. I'm sure as a mother, you see this. You know, when a when a child is born, it can't regulate even its own temperature. You know, mm. when a child is six or seven, it's feeling emotions, but it can't self-regulate that easily. So it has to learn how to do that. And if you learn that, you know, in a slightly damaging way, then you're going to be stuck with a with a trauma response that may not be helpful when you're 25, right? Yeah. But if you learn good habits, then then that's going to stay with you as well for a long time. So as an adult, learning how to self-regulate without alcohol mm. feels like an impossible task. It isn't. Sometimes it actually does look like toast. Oh, that's amazing. Callum, what a way to end. Um, If you're open to sharing, how can people find you and follow your journey? Um, Yeah, I'm I'm kind of uh, new to this. Obviously, I've been sober for a while, but um, for the first time in my life, I'm actually sharing my my story um, kind of publicly, and that's why it's so lovely to come on uh, the show. Um, If uh, people are interested, you can find me on Instagram at Callum Patrick Hughes, uh, on Twitter at Callum P. Hughes, um, or you can come... Uh, and see me talk about uh, my story uh, on stage actually I'm going on tour starting tomorrow uh, in Bristol 
um, at the Alma Theatre. Then we're going to Blackpool at the Old Electric, which is a wonderful dry venue. Anyone listening uh, in the Lancashire area, um, it's a really, really great uh great kind of space um and also yeah completely kind of dry bar um then at vault festival in waterloo uh, uh on the 28th and 29th then we go to cambridge bath um york shepton mallet bungie dorchester mayfield uh, and then we're going to edinburgh uh, fringe as well for a month um in that show uh, uh a lot of people come to have a beer with me i perform the show quite often in pubs and pub theaters like i say i'm a big fan of pub culture um it's uh it's not a doom and gloom story it celebrates the community of pubs um and uh and and everything that that's kind of given to me in terms of my career and my friendships and my relationships but it also yeah it does look at um at my own journey with addiction um what that's been like for me as a performer and uh what it's like going forward um and some of the responses are amazing if you do come and see the show please stick around afterwards um come chat to me um because the conversations i have after the show uh for me are almost better than doing the show uh it's really really amazing what people kind of come and come and share with you what is the show called it's called thirst um and if anyone does want to find details uh they can go to thirsttheplay.com um uh, or you can go on my personal website, callumpatrickhughes.com, and you'll find all the dates and listings there. Uh, in pretty much every venue, we've managed to keep tickets to around a tenner, 10 or 12 pounds. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty accessible. And it's only an hour as well. So, Oh, it's amazing. Well, I wish you all the best of luck with that. And um, it's been brilliant, enlightening talking to you. Uh, you've got a great story, and you've obviously worked so hard and now you're getting the rewards. And keep, don't forget to give yourself some credit. That has come from you. <laughs> that's Thank my you. Well, that's my that's, tip. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking that away today. I love it as well. You can be four and a half years sober and people think, oh, you're not going to worry. And then you have one conversation like this and you're like, well, I'm neglecting one area. <laughs> There we go. And there's always something to learn. Thank you so much for the work you do. Um, building communities like this, I really, really believe in. Um, I think this is what literally keeps people alive. So thank you so much. Oh, that's lovely. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you to everybody else. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in being a guest, please contact me directly on Instagram by sending a message to at Sassy Sober Mum. You can also find helpful tools and resources on my website, sassysobermum.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to spread the love, please like, share and rate the podcast. I really look forward to next time. See you then.